Good morning. Uh, voici la question. Est-ce que nous sommes prêts? Are we ready? Here we go. Here's the question. Get your Bible, get your phone so you can follow along. And here's the question. Are you ready to study God's Word today? Amen. All right. We are in Matthew chapter 2. Now, I don't know about you. I'm old school. I like to look at it in the Bible so I can see how all the verses fit together and, and put things in context. We're in Matthew chapter 2. If you want to look it up on your phone, you can as well. And it will also be on the screen. But we are this month in this series that we're calling Love Came Down. And this week and next week, we're going to cover a lot of ground. Really, these two Sundays are going to fit together because this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to look at a particular place at a particular moment in history and how four different groups of people responded differently when love came down. And the particular place that we are going to look at is a place where, where, where probably more significant events have happened in human history than any other place on earth. And it is the ancient city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, when we think of Christmas, we don't always think of Jerusalem. We tend to think of Bethlehem. We sing all the songs, right? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Tell me your favorite Jerusalem Christmas song. <laughs> we don't have any, at least to the best of my knowledge, about Christmas in Jerusalem. You can see that it's very, very close to Bethlehem. Jerusalem is a big, huge, ancient city, and Bethlehem is just a tiny little village, a little town, as the song says, and it's really, it's just south of Jerusalem. It's within walking distance. It's kind of a little, tiny suburb of the big city of Jerusalem. But many of the events in the Christmas story actually happen, not just in Bethlehem, but in Jerusalem. Now let me show you what it looks like today. The city of Jerusalem today has both modern parts, as you can see in the back, new uh, large tall buildings, but here you're looking in the forefront at the ancient city of Jerusalem, and the, the most prominent building is what? It's of course this subtle little gold dome. <laughs> This is the picture that we think of, this gold dome, when we think of Jerusalem today. That is called the, uh, the Dome of the Rock. Beside it, there's a smaller mosque called the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, which is the holy place where Muslims come to pray. But this was built in 691 AD by Muslims, but that is not what originally stood in this place. In fact, if you look, you see here this large wall that runs all along the front. And that large wall creates a platform. If you were to strip that wall away and strip down the platform, you would actually see a hill, a tiny little mountain. And it sits right on the peak, but then this temple mount has been created around it. And what originally stood in this place, the very first was the temple. The holiest place for the Jewish people, the temple of Jerusalem. 
And Jesus loved this city with a passion. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus cried, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So I showed you what the city looks like today, but when Jesus said those words, Jerusalem actually looked like this. This is a model uh, that you can see, a, a, a shrunken down but live to scale model of the ancient city of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. When you go to Jerusalem, you can see this. By the way, uh, if you have never been and you would like to go, Tracy and I are preparing to lead a tour along with Dr. Steve Lennox uh, to Israel in March of 2020. We've been a number of times together and it is going to be an amazing trip for anybody who's interested. You can uh, get a brochure out at the information center after church or you can email the church office and they'll forward it to Tracy and she will send you a brochure uh, in a digital copy if you would prefer. That is March break of 2020. And so here on the place where now the Dome of the Rock stands, this is that, you see the wall, Temple Mount, with the temple at the center. And this is also not just a significant place in the time of Jesus, and not just because of the temple. What actually happened before the temple in this spot, in fact, 2,000 years before Jesus and 1,000 years before any temple was ever built on that spot, this is the place where God made his covenant with Abraham. If you know the story in the Old Testament where Abraham brings his son Isaac to a place called Mount Moriah to make sacrifice, and God provides a ram for sacrifice, and Abraham, God says, because of your great faith and courage and obedience to me, I make you this promise. And so this was the covenant that began it all, the, the, the very foundation upon which scripture was built. Genesis 22, verse 15 through 8, God said, at this place, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And though your offspring, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because of you, because you obeyed me. Listen, there was no city here when God made this covenant with Abraham. There was just a little hill called Mount Moriah. And it was in that very spot that Abraham made sacrifice. It was in this very spot that, that, that God made his covenant with the Hebrew people. This spot where the temple was later built. This spot where the city of Jerusalem now stands. The city where Jesus proclaimed his message of hope and died to take the punishment for the sins of the world to set us free. This place where God has intersected with mankind and human history more than any other place in history. And so when Jesus came down, when love came down, 
We're going to see today four different people who lived in the city of Jerusalem in the Christmas story and how each of them responded when love came down. The first person we are going to look at is Herod, King Herod. And when love came down, Herod showed that he had power, but without humility. Would you agree that we see this many times in our world today? Power without humility. And listen, when you take this combination and you infuse it with a little touch of fear, it becomes a dangerous and toxic thing. In fact, I would suggest to you that, that many of the problems in our world today, so much of the suffering and violence and subjugation of the poor and, and wars and conflict is because we have leaders who are, who, are, who are powerful but are without humility and driven by fear. Herod had been given great power over Israel under the authority of the Roman Empire. And so during his entire reign, for the next 40 years, he ruled with an iron fist. He was always scared that people were out to get him. He didn't trust anybody. And so now at the point when Jesus is born, Herod is an, a man of about 70 years old, who is just a few years away from his own death, and he is scared, frightened to death. When all of a sudden, one day, he receives some visitors to his palace in Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, this question that the Magi asked sent Herod into a tizzy. <laughs> he said, what king could you be talking about? There is no king of the Jews other than me. This is my place. I am the one who is in charge. And so in verse 3, he comes up with a little scheme. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would all Jerusalem be disturbed with Herod? Why would they care? Here's why they would care. We spent 10 years before we moved uh, to Moncton in Alabama. And I learned a lot of Southern wisdom when I was in Alabama. And one of the pieces of wisdom that I learned goes like this. When mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. You ever heard that? When mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, listen, the people in Israel knew when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Because when Herod gets disturbed, people die. Now, let's talk about this word humility for a minute. What is humility? Peter Winter gives a definition. He says, humility is a sign of self-confidence. And I would add, actually, confidence in God. It means we're secure enough 
to alter our views based on new information and new circumstances. You see, generally those who are arrogant, those who think they are always right, those who always have to have things their own way, those who lash out at others, it is because they are insecure. And Herod, Herod was insecure lashing out to hurt other people. Forty years earlier, when Herod first became the king, do you know one of the very first things he did was he ordered that all of the Sanhedrin be killed, put to death. The Sanhedrin were the Jewish ruling council. They were the 70 most powerful religious leaders in the country. And with one executive order, he ordered that they be killed. Later, he put to death his brother-in-law, his wife, his mother-in-law, and three of his own children. In fact, Caesar Augustus said that it was safer for you to be Herod's pig than to be his son. That's why people in Jerusalem were disturbed with him. Because they know that when Herod is upset, people die. Matthew 2, verse 7 through 8. So here is the scheme that he comes up with, a trick. Herod called the Magi secretly. And he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. But the Magi realize that this is a trick. God literally speaks wisdom into the Magi's Lives And so when they find Jesus, instead of going back to tell Herod, they leave in the opposite direction. And then what happens next? Skip down to verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Now this horrible, horrible event is called the Massacre of the Innocents. And this is one of the reasons that I have heard some people say they do not believe the Bible is true. You see, there are a number of things that historians and archaeologists, people and places, that they believed did not exist because they are in no other place in ancient records other than the Bible. This is one of those things. Now, archaeology continues to discover and historians continue to discover new things and everything they find, instead of disproving the Bible, continues to affirm and confirm the Bible again and again and again. And that's why I love going back to Israel because every time I go, there are new archaeological sites and new discoveries that do more to prove the authenticity and the accuracy of the Bible. But this is not one of them. You see, this story is found nowhere else other than in the book of the Gospels. And, and, and so many would say, well, if, if Herod did such a horrible thing like this, surely it would show up in some other record. Well, I already told you all the people, much more important people than folks living in Bethlehem, he had already killed. 
And, and if you look at Bethlehem, I said it was just a tiny little village. Even if there were a few hundred people who lived there, how many boys would there be under the age of two years old? Maybe 10? Some days, Herod killed that many people before lunch. And so it is no surprise that an event that back then would be considered a non-event would not be recorded somewhere else. But unfortunately, in North America today, in Canada to some extent, but especially in the United States, this strikes all too far to home, doesn't it? To see the senseless violence and acts of terrorism and school shootings. And you know that those things are the work of Satan, right? You know that Satan comes to make us afraid. That the more fearful we live, the more frightened and, and insecure we become, and the less we trust God, the more he wins. The Bible says that Satan comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And from a historical perspective, look, this is nothing new. The violence we see today has been going on since sin first entered the world, and it will continue until this world comes to its final end. And Jesus comes back again as revealed in the book of Revelation. Things are not going to get better. Have a great Christmas. Thanks. And so some people, some people retreat in fear, afraid to go outdoors, afraid to go to church. But listen, as Christians, we have no need to be afraid. Why? Because we know what's going to happen in the end. We've already read the end of the book, and Jesus wins. <laughs> See, fear is the opposite of faith. And here's why. Because fear makes you like Herod, who lashed out to hurt other people. Let, let me ask you, think about the people you know, or maybe even the times in your own life, when you have, have, have gossip, or when people complain, or when people scheme against you, people who try to hurt others, people who are always trying to get their own way, it's because they are operating in fear and insecurity. It's a lack of humility. And I just want to ask you a question today to ponder. Is there any area in your life today where you are not being humble before God? Just ponder that question for a minute. Is there any area in your life where you are not being humble before God, where you're really not trusting Him, and so you're doing things the world's way, you're operating out of fear rather than faith. For some of us, it's in our finances, as we talked about earlier. For some, maybe it's in, in our sexuality, or our, our, you know, we know what the Bible says, and, and, but you know what? We, we like what the world says better than what God says. We, maybe it's with our children. Some people operate parent out of fear. And we try to protect our kids from the world rather than preparing them to go out and make a difference. I've heard some parents say, I'm terrified that God might call my children to be missionaries, to go off somewhere dangerous around the world. 
See, that comes from a false understanding. They're not your kids. They're God's kids. And he gave them to you to prepare them for the world, not just to protect them from the world. Maybe for some, it's, it's we, we fail to humble ourselves before God in our attitude in our forgiveness, somebody hurts me and I'm going to hold on to that anger. I'm not going to let it go. I've got this bitterness because I deserve to hold on to this. And so we fail to humble ourselves before God. Like Herod, we start fighting against Jesus rather than allowing him to take over. And so King Herod is the first one that we meet in Jerusalem in the Christmas story. The next people we are going to meet are actually the most educated in the land. We're going to look at the people who were basically the professors and, and, and teachers and politicians, the power brokers, and here's what we find. That the educated had knowledge without wisdom. Now remember in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, it said that Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. What that tells you is that these prophecies, what was happening here with Jesus was not a surprise. There were actually people who were well-educated in Jerusalem who knew what God said he was going to do. They had the information, but they did not care. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 4. It says, when Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, they knew. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. They knew. But you, Bethlehem, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. They knew the prophecies. They knew that it would happen in Bethlehem. But they didn't care. In other words, here's, here's how I interpret this. They had the right information, but they lacked the wisdom to do the right thing. I was thinking about that this week, and I wondered, has there ever been a time in human history when we had more access to information? That, that we hold, many of us, in our pockets the accumulated wisdom or, or information, rather, the knowledge of the entire world right here in our pockets at a minute's notice. And really, this is a change just in the last 10 years of human history that it's that accessible. And here's my question. Have we ever had more information but less wisdom? Let me say it in a different way. Has there ever been a time in human history when we had access to more information but less wisdom to know what to do with it? Because here's the definition. I think when you look at the, the two, knowledge is knowing information. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. Knowledge is knowing lots of stuff. But wisdom is actually knowing what to do or knowing who to go to. Because Psalm 111 answers the question, where do we find wisdom? 
It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. Professor Mary Poplin was a professor at Claremont Graduate School. She was teaching in the humanities department. Her specialty was teaching modern feminism, multiculturalism, and postmodernism. She writes, a central image in my life was the actress Shirley MacLaine, dancing on the beach in free-spirited fashion. I was seeking happiness, self-fulfillment, freedom from restraint, all the while deluding myself about my own goodness. We were children of the 60s, products of the I'm okay, you're okay culture. And yet, in certain moments, she said, I could see glimpses of who I really was. I was not growing freer with all of these things that I was teaching my students. My heart was growing harder, my emotions darker, and my mind more confused. She said, one night I had a dream in which I could see the Lord's Supper with Jesus at the center. You know the picture, like the painting of the Lord's Supper? Mary said, when I, when I looked across the scene, when I got to Jesus, I looked into his eyes and I grasped immediately that every cell in my body was filled with filth. Weeping, I fell at his feet. But when he reached over and touched my shoulders, I suddenly felt perfect peace. She said, then I woke up and I wasn't sure what to do about this. She talked with a friend, and they said, well, if it was about Jesus and you want to learn more, maybe, maybe read a Bible. And then she started going to a church where she, she heard the good news of Jesus for the first time, and she prayed, Lord, if you are real, please come in to my life. And she said, suddenly I felt a peace like I had never known before, but, but that I had experienced in that dream. She said, I, I found the forgiveness of God for the abortions that I had gone through, for the things that I had done. And Mary said, when I resumed teaching later that year, I experienced a profound intellectual crisis. I would weep before entering my class. I realized that I was still teaching the same things I had always taught, even though now I knew they were not true. I, I was allowing secularism to define my intellectual boundaries. Can we just admit that many times we set up boundaries as Christians, right, where we, we, we say, well, I, I can, I'm only going to see things through the lens of believing that there is a God. And, and so secular people would say that is not intellectual honesty to start from the framework that there is a God. But do you know what you can say back? It is also not intellectual honesty to start from the position that you believe for a fact that there is no God. That's not intellectual honesty either because you can't prove that there is no God. 
And she said, but I had lived with this mindset my whole life and everything that I had been educated with and what I had taught my students, that, that secularism needed to define my intellectual boundaries. But now, the more I read the Bible, the more I could see how Christ's wisdom reaches beyond secular thinking. Because again, in Psalm 111, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom itself. Next week, we are going to meet two of my absolute favorite people in the Christmas story. Next week's going to be so good. We're going to announce the results from the Christmas offering. Uh, our mayor from Moncton is going to be here next week as a special guest. And uh, Cal's going to be back. And it's, just, oh, it's going to be one of those celebration moments in our church that we're going to remember for a long, long time. But I also am excited because next week I get to show you the two people in Jerusalem who are my favorite people and how they responded differently when love came down. But today as we look at Herod, is it possible that sometimes we are like him? He had power. He had money. He had privilege. Like most of us in Canada. As Christians, we don't think of ourselves as powerful, do we? But we have lots of power compared to most people in the world. In fact, many of our immigrants who are brand new to Moncton and, and many who have started coming to our church, you could ask some who have come from countries where they don't have the same freedoms that we have. Many of our new families here at the church are from Nigeria. You know, I, I recently discovered that in the last three years, 16,000 Christians have been killed in northern Nigeria in the last three years. In India last year, 400 Christians suffered violence because of their faith. According to World Watch List, approximately 215 million Christians, let's put this on the screen. According to the World Watch List, approximately 215 million Christians now experience high very high or extreme levels of persecution. That means one in 12 Christians live where Christianity is illegal, is forbidden, or is punished. You say, Joel, what's the point? Well, the first point is we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. But the other point is, listen, compared to them, you are rich and powerful in Canada. And yet Herod had power without humility, which is a dangerous, dangerous combination. He was driven by fear rather than faith. And when you live your life in fear rather than in faith, it takes you into all kinds of dark places. And then we looked at the most educated in Jerusalem, the elite. And what did we see was true of them? That they had education, they had knowledge without wisdom. They had information, but they did not do anything about what they had learned of Jesus. And so here's what we're going to pray today, that God would give us both humility and wisdom. Would you, would you agree with me? <laughs> that if we need anything to face the challenges in this world today, we need the wisdom of God. Amen?
And so let's stand together as we prepare our hearts for prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we face situations every day that we do not know what we should do. We are so often overwhelmed with information. We so often have the paralysis of analysis. We are exposed to so many problems and so much heartache and so many issues and so much sickness and so much disease and terrorism and violence and policy issues and political issues and chemical issues and social issues and gender issues and sexuality issues and, and, and relational issues and family issues. And, and, and so often all of these things just burden us down so that we want to go into a hole and do nothing. But God, we pray that we would have your courage, that we would be both humble and submissive to you and the truth of your word but also filled with your wisdom to know what to do about it. To act in faith. To step out in whatever you call us to do. Lord, we know that we can't help everybody, but we can help somebody. We know we can't do everything, but we can do something. And Lord, today for anyone who is here in this place who has never surrendered to Jesus Lord, we pray this morning that they would open their hearts to you, just like the professor that we heard about this morning, who finally surrendered to Jesus and found that you expanded her horizon and opened her eyes to the truth of your love. And so if there's anyone here today who you would like to make that decision to surrender yourself to him today, would you just in your heart pray and say, Heavenly Father, forgive me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me to take the punishment that I deserve for my sin. And I receive his forgiveness. Receive your grace. Come into my life. Wash me clean. Fill me up. Give me a new beginning. And I promise to follow you all the rest of my life to order my, my steps around your word. And so, Father, we join together with them and all of us in this room saying, Lord, we need you. We come to you. And we declare your goodness in this place as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.